As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Mark Chapman, welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. With us as usual, The Athletic's Matt Slater. The focus of today's pod is the European Super League because uh, it just will not seem to die, will it? Matt, you've written an excellent piece on The Athletic, which we'll discuss here. I think a lot of people, particularly in this country, would have thought that it had been killed off, really. Since everybody pulled out bar the three... What has been happening? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's this this was in terms of product launches. This is this is like New Coke and you know all the other sort of famous disasters um, launched on a, a sort of like midnight on a Sunday, April the 18th, I think it was, sort of dead by April 20th, um, with the English clubs, the six English clubs pulling out. You know, amid huge fan protests. I mean, talk about people voting with their feet. You know, if this, if they, if they were flight flying this kite, you know, see how it went. Well, it was shot down. It was, it was, it was a disaster, right? And it all seemed completely done and dusted within the week. As I said, the six English clubs pulled out, and then AC and Inter and Atletico pulled out within about a week or so. Early May, there were settlements reached with the UEFA for these nine clubs, nine of the twelve which involved paying goodwill contributions. Can't call them fines because fines sounds like a punishment, which we will get into. That's quite important. So uh, these goodwill contributions were made with a further 5% to come off their UEFA revenues for these clubs in 23-24. We fast forward about a month. The Premier League made similar agreements with these clubs, you know, which came across to many people as sort of slaps on the wrist. But again, the language was important. These were goodwill. These were settlements, not sanctions. So that was what was going on in terms of the punishment, if you like, for these clubs. In the background, you had three of them, Barca, Real and Juve, who didn't go along with any of this, who didn't say sorry, who didn't, who didn't drop the idea, who didn't race for the exit. And, and to understand why, you have to go back to April the 18th. You have to go back to those first few crucial days because what the 12 Super League clubs did right at the beginning was they got a court, a commercial court in Madrid to file a preemptive injunction against disciplinary action. 
They knew this was coming. They knew, because obviously they've been talking about it behind the scenes for a while, they knew that UEFA in particular, but UEFA and FIFA acting in concert were going to act against them. They were going to say, this is a breakaway league, this destroys the football pyramid, our calendar, blah, 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 all the good things that football does that we're responsible for. This is a threat to that. And we are going to take disciplinary action against you, which will be, for example, banning you from our competitions. It could well be banning players from playing international tournaments and so on and so on and so on. A Madrid court, a judge in a Madrid court, before any of that, said, you can't do this. That would be an abuse of a dominant market position. I'm using EU competition law. You have a right, this third party, this organization and your promoters and your backers, you have a right to promote and to propose a new competition. Of course you do. And any attempt to stop that, as I say, is contrary to EU law. So with that preemptive injunction, that then you could argue UEFA and FIFA ignored, the flip side, of course, is that they didn't need to do anything because the fans had voted. That's what really killed this. But from a legal point of view, the three clubs felt, do you know what? We don't need to quit. We don't need to hand, hold our hands up and say never and ever, never again, because we have a court ruling. Now, as I said, this has been, that's been there. That's, they chose to use that as their defence. They didn't, they didn't say sorry to UEFA. They didn't go cap in hand to the European Club Association and say, let us back in. They didn't go to La Liga and say, don't punish us. None of that happened. In June, the court in Madrid reminded UEFA, by the way, you know, you're in breach of, uh, of our injunction. And if you, for example, Alexander Seferin, if you land in, in Madrid, we might serve you a writ. You know, so you are, you are you know, in contempt of court, basically. The Swiss authorities had to acknowledge that. UEFA have been ignoring him. They've been pretending, who is this little, little man down in Madrid that has no jurisdiction over me? The Swiss authorities said, by the way, you know, they might, they, might, they might have something here. Let's refer this to the European Court of Justice. Let's go straight to the end here and get European Court of Justice, you do European competition law to deal with this. And that, I think, is what most people thought would happen, right? At some point next year, we're going to have a big Bosman-type ruling on this. And that's, I think, what UEFA wanted to happen. They suspended their action against Real, Barca and Juve, and they thought that would be it. But no, the Madrid court did not take that. Last week, gave them one last warning, saying to them, no, no, we didn't mean suspend. We meant stop rip up and those settlements you did with the nine clubs they're all contrary to my injunction UEFA this being here this week begrudgingly at the last minute went yeah all right then we'll do that and then Tuesday morning the best bit by the way we haven't that was a tactical retreat because we are appealing your original injunction in Spain and we want the judge to be removed because we think he's you know ridden roughshod over law so Tactical retreat by UEFA. But what has actually happened this week is those settlements have been ripped up and disciplinary action against the three has stopped. So disciplinary action against the three has stopped. The goodwill contributions from the others, have they been collected? Well, good question, Mark. Because I think this, this kind of... Now we're getting into what's really going on here and what UEFA were really worried about and where they want this fight to happen. It's not like they'd been banging on Liverpool and Arsenal and Man United's door saying, oh, by the way, can we have that million quid you owe us? No, there have been no steps to collect it yet. So the deals have been ripped up. No money has changed hands yet anyway. And we are back in this legal twilight Go right back. That's where we're back. We've gone, we've gone right back to April. 
that there is a, a competition that's been proposed by the richest, wealthiest, most powerful clubs in Europe that the fans, particularly in this country, rejected and that the clubs in this country particularly have gone, hmm, we can't come back to the market with that idea again, at least not for a long time. But three clubs, and don't forget these, these clubs all signed up to a company. They are all still sitting legally on a board somewhere, in paper only, you could argue, but, but legally they are members of a company that set up this Super League. Three of them have said, no peace deals, no, we're not backing down. No, we haven't dropped this idea. Yes, we'll carry on playing in the Champions League. Of course we will, because you can't boot us out because that would be an abuse of your dominant market position. But, but we are going to keep working on our idea and the Super League lives. The real question, and, and this is in the article, is whether UEFA is a regulator yep. or whether UEFA is a competitor. Okay, how much EU competition law do you want right now? Well, my natural instinct is to say very little, I'll be honest <laughs> with you. But whatever is relevant, I think you're going to have to say, because the article says, and as you look at it, this is the crux of the matter. So if, if we have to get legal, we have to get legal. I'm afraid so. I'll do it as quickly as, and as, as yeah. I'm a layman. I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. I've had this explained to me several times. I think I've got it. So... Think about the European Union. I know we've left it, but, you know, Brexit doesn't mean Brexit. It really doesn't. We're still, we're still, you know, immersed in it. Competition is inherently a good thing, right? Better outcomes come from competition, right? That's, that's your founding principle. However, it doesn't work in every case, in every sector, in every example. Some regulation is needed. In some sectors, some places, more regulation than others. Sport is one of those places. On top of that, governments, EU institutions have sort of shied away from sport. We don't want to get involved in sport. We'll leave it to the national governing bodies and international federations. They've been going for 100 years, longer than we have. Let's leave them to it. And by and large, that has worked. There have been a couple of times it's been tested in some big legal landmark sports or landmark cases, Bosman being a famous one. There have been a couple of others. And what we've got to sort of now is a kind of equilibrium, a kind of balancing act where almost every case is sort of judged on its merits. In theory, the international federations have re regulatory monopolies. They run their sports. They set the rules, be it doping, corruption stuff, the calendar, everything from VAR, you name it, right? But they, but they have a social good. They have a legitimate objective, which is developing their sport, women's sport, you know, just health, et cetera, et cetera, all the good things we like about sport. They have legitimate objectives that justify their regulatory monopolies, they're self-appointed monopolies. Now that, as far as that goes, is fine. Where things get complicated is where we get into economic activity and the EU massively cares about that. And then we get into EU competition law again. So, Bosman, good example. That was very clearly a case about economic activity. You know, football's rules preventing a player from playing, from, from pursuing his career. You know, if you just to remind everybody, you know, that was a guy who was, who was under contract that come, actually come to the end of his contract and was unable to move without his ex previous club getting a fee. And then on top of that, he wanted to move abroad. He was a Belgian player. He wanted to play in France. And there were rules at the time about the number of foreign players you could have. Now, that didn't sit well at all with the single market. So there you go. That was a classic, classic case of economic activity, UEFA and FIFA's 
monopoly reg, uh, regulatory monopoly not working, being an abuse of the market, and the, and the EU intervening. So here we go. We're now on a competition, and this is about a calendar, how you govern the sport, the pyramid, etc., etc., etc. What the Super League clubs are saying is, we're not breaking away from our domestic leagues. We're just choosing not to play in the UEFA's midweek pan-European competition. We're going to set up our own competition that the clubs are going to be shareholders of. Okay, everybody knows that one of the problems was it was going to be a, a semi-closed league with the permanent members. But let's just ignore that for a minute. Let's just go with the principle of we want to set up a new competition. How do we do it? Well, we have to go to, we have to announce it, basically. We have to tell UEFA and FIFA, we want to do this thing. Would you give us your approval? We'd like it if you did. But if you don't, we'll go to court and fight for our right to set up this competition. UEFA piling in, going, no way, because that absolutely kills our midweek competition that we use to fund all the good things that we do. We're also concerned about player workload, and they'll, they'll throw loads of argument at this, but they'll say, we want to protect our calendar. So that is where you get into this issue of, is UEFA now behaving like a regulator, behaving like this omniscient, legitimate objective, uh, thinking of the greater good regulator, or is it actually defending its very, very lucrative competition and behaving like a bully? That is what this row is about. Is this row, as far as Real, Barca and Juve are concerned, are these lawsuits and so on and so forth, are they there just to stop them being punished or are they fighting them to eventually get what they want with a European Super League? Oh, yes. <laughs> that, well, that, that's it. That's, that's it. I mean, uh, that's the question. The question is really my answer because it's a bit of both, right? They are in the short term, you know, fighting the disciplinary action. And you could argue it's already been successful because last time I checked, Real Barca and Juve are playing in Europe and they haven't been, you know, handed by anybody. They haven't made any goodwill contributions. So, and their players played in the Euros and they're going to play in the World Cup, right? So, yes, there's an element of that. But really, let's be honest, this is really about the next round. This is really about the next time this idea comes back. And I think what we're, what we're, what we're heading for here is, this is very much sort of setting the terms of how this, how this happens next time. You know, what can UEFA and FIFA do to stop this? Because a lot of, a lot of what I was saying in my last answer about them being granted these monopoly rights in terms of regulation is that they are meant to behave proportionately and rationally. So good example would be doping, right? Of course, UEFA, FIFA, the IOC, you name it, you pick your, the IAAF, can ban someone, i.e. stop them from doing their jobs, stop them from earning a living if they have cheated using drugs. Because the noble objective you are defending is one, the integrity of the competition, but health, you know, there are, you know, certainly a good example to all of us, you know, there are, there is a legitimate objective there that they are defending. So that is a carve out from your competition law. Yes, I'm sorry, you took drugs, you can't work for two years. If you do it again, you can't work ever, forever, right? That's it, you're out of my sport. Now, now is defending the Champions League by saying to uh, Juve and, and Barca and Real and their players, you can't play in World Cups. Is that, is that a bit OTT, frankly? And is it a noble objective? So this row 
will define some of that. It will define, I think, the limits that UEFA and FIFA can take in defending their calendar. I think it will. I think what we're going to probably have is a score draw that, that both sides will be able to claim some wins from. That the Super League guys will go away and think, okay, we, we now have a bit of certainty. When we come back, we now know what we have to propose. What were the bits they didn't like? So the closed thing, was that legal anyway? Could we have been part subject to an EU competition problem there by having a closed league? You know, do we need to address that? I mean, clearly the fans said we do, but do we legally? I think I think that's something that will definitely happen if this idea comes back. And I think it will come back. I suspect the permanent members, the closed element of it will go. I think probably what we'll have is, is actually a proper league with divisions. I think we'll have a Super League one, two and three. And there, there, there you answer your, your, your qualification criteria and your pyramid element to it. There is another theory, right, that we won't even get to the European Court of Justice. Because, I mean, there's a, there's a big backlog. There's a couple other cases that, 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 that are relevant to this argument that to get through first, one in particular involving international skating union. I don't even want to get into that. But, it, but, it, it, but it, it, trust me, it's the same sort of territory, right? It's governing body being very aggressive in defence of its calendar and stopping athletes taking part in a third-party competition. They actually lost. They actually lost, right? The yeah. athletes won that one. But the funny thing was, even though they lost, their status as regulatory monopolies was 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 enshrined again was reconfirmed it's just they were told by the way there are limits to your power so that's important limits to your power and i think that's the message that uefa will get from this yes we are the monopoly yes that's legitimate and legal but we can't throw away it around and, and just say no and 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 go nuclear when someone comes along with an idea and i think that might be enough for the super league and the theory i was going to get into is that there's a suggestion that UEFA will know will be will be will be, will be taxed on the shoulder, but their lawyers will be. We're probably going to lose. We're, we're, we're going to look like we might lose at the ECJ level. So let's just settle. Let's compromise. And I think the compromise we're heading for is something that was talked about pre-April 18th, and that was that these big clubs. Don't forget that at the same time, they were getting the revamped Champions League, which to many of us, me, looks a lot like a Super League. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. the Swiss League and the extra games and blah, blah, blah. Right? What they also wanted and didn't get was they wanted commercial control of the tournament. What they get at the Premier League level, right? They are shareholders in the competition where UEFA basically backs out of running the competition and you basically let the big clubs run the competition, make the commercial decisions and perhaps even, dare I say, Make them let them decide the financial fair play rules because that was another part of the Super League proposition. I think work, that's where we might get to that the, the Champions League will become ever more like a Super League and the big clubs will be given commercial control. It's interesting, just on that, you know, a plan is put forward and, and you described, you know, someone going nuclear at it. And that's kind of what happened with this. But as we were talking on, on the, the pod with, with David Ornstein a couple of days ago when he was talking about you know, Premier League games going abroad and we talk about World Cup every two years. The default position often, not just in sport, but in general, is ideas come along and plans come along and people go nuclear at them. Well, nothing's ever going to progress if people continue to go nuclear at any plan that that's that's put there. Yeah, well, look, we're a conservative bunch, aren't we? You know, football fans. Um, we don't like change. We like it the way it always was. And 
you know, there are pl- plenty of examples of that, be it, be it you know, VAR or, or you know, lots of rule changes or new competition formats. Our default position tends to be, ooh, don't like that. Mm, you're changing things. Now, look, things can't stay the same forever because if they do, you get drift and people get bored. And there's a, there was a genuine, I think, concern about, you know, the, the next generation of football fans. We already know they've been slightly priced out of going to actual games and we're worried about TV subscriptions and all that. And, you know, you can see the, the changing habits, you know, the, the, the competition from, from video games and just other sports and Fortnite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so it's perfectly legitimate for the chief execs, if you like, of football to worry. That's kind of their job. And to sort of want to keep things moving forward. And, and look, and often you often hear this, it's all about money. But yeah, it's, it, it is kind of a little bit about money because, because money enables you to put on these amazing shows, you know, these great players, uh, you know, they're competing with other sports. So they've always mentioned that they've already mentioned they're competing with other forms of entertainment. So look, they, they, none of that in itself is evil or wrong. I think what really wounds people up, continues to wind people up about playing games abroad, Super League, is a sort of sense that it's only about money. And then it's only about my club right now. I'm the biggest club in the world right now. Some of them, some of it just by luck of timing, just by being big at the right time. And I want, and I, this is my status. But you know what? I quite like young boys beating Man United. You know, and I, you know, I quite like Leicester winning the Premier League. And I quite like Atalanta, you know, bloodying noses in, um, in, in Italy as well. You know, and if we don't have that, the pyramid's gone. What gets me as a football fan excited is gone. If we forget that, and if we start doing anything that I think entrenches positions, well, let's go follow the NFL. If that's what you're interested in, if you, if you want that kind of certainty, American sports for you. But that, doesn't, that, but that does, make, I think, mean draft systems, salary caps, revenue sharing, because that is how they engineer competitive balance and integrity and, 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 and excitement and playoffs. You, you can't just, just take a little bit of it. You have to go the whole hog. So that, that's, that's the problem I have with some of these ideas. But I do, I do take your point that we are a conservative bunch and our default position tends to be pitchforks and rah, and then we need to sort of calm down a bit and go, well, actually, maybe that idea isn't so bad or there's bits of that idea that we like. So coming up next on the pod, you're going to hear Matt in conversation with Katerina Piatlovich, an expert on breakaway leagues, a sports law specialist who will help us dig a little deeper into this Super League saga. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Okay, we're joining us now is, is, is Dr. Katarina Pjatlovic, who's from Manchester Metropolitan University, expert in, in, in sports law, but particularly breakaway leagues. Um, but in my, we've just been talking, I've just been talking to Mark Chapman about um, the situation with the Super League and UEFA and this sort of legal dispute, this, this back and forth. Um, you helped me out with a piece that, that we, we published today, Wednesday, um, and you have you you helped me through it to be honest because some of it was quite quite difficult stuff for, for me a layman to understand, and I think one of the things that I found really useful was was how you described the limits of UEFA's power, the limits of a monopoly regulator's power, and how they have to behave in a proportionate manner. So if someone comes to them with an idea for a new competition, what they can and can't do. So let's just let's just just build on that a little bit. If you were, if you were the Super League, how would you propose a new competition to UEFA? So the main problem, the main questions are going to come down to whether or not that gatekeeping function on the market that UEFA as a as a regulator exercises to allow somebody through into that commercial side of the market, whether or not uh, that has been uh, exercised proportionately, reasonably, and in a legal way. So the way to do it legally is to set conditions for issuing the license, in other words, uh, issuing prior authorization for these competitions, uh, alternative competitions or rivals of the UEFA in that commercial market. The, the conditions cannot be any different than it sets for its own competitions so that there is a level playing field in the commercial side of market. So if the UEFA, for instance, told Super League, fine, you can go on and organize, but 25% of your uh, revenues are going to have to end up with us in a solidarity you know, contribution. Uh, that would be way more than it requires of its own competitions in solidarity, and that would be discriminatory. So that would be illegal condition. And in that case, uh, UEFA would be overstepping the, the boundaries, the legal boundaries of its regulatory authority and what it can and cannot legally do. So every condition that it sets has to be set in advance. It has to be transparent. All the conditions, so the list of the conditions have to be exhaustive so that you cannot like later on add to it uh, randomly, whatever you want. And so when somebody who wants to enter the organizational market and organize a new competition looks at these conditions, they know exactly what they need to do. And they can say, well, yeah, fine. This seems like a fair, um, you know, fair thing to ask of us uh, because that's exactly what, you know, UEFA Champions League is doing. 
So that that's really interesting. So that last point. Do you think then that that's what this dispute involving the Madrid court and this attempt to get this to the European Court of Justice is really all about? That the Super League clubs want to define, they want to force UEFA to actually write this stuff down. Here are our criteria that do meet European Union competition law. And as soon as it's written down, well, then the game has changed, right? Whoever, whoever, the next person that comes along with a new idea at least knows the rules of the game. Of course, uh, there is always uh, the danger of governing bodies setting out the rules that are formally compliant with law, but in practice, they would exercise that in a different way. They would give, uh, for instance, too much uh, trouble to any aspiring entrance to that market. Uh, but obviously, uh, that is also uh, something that then legally could be, you know, it, it could be challenged. And um, so there is also a possibility or a requirement in the case law that any refusal to authorize competition has to be really explained, written down, reasoned, and it has to be a decision that is reviewable, subject to some administrative oversight. Now, we are not sure because, again, um, we don't have precise legal guidelines what that means exactly. Does that mean judicial oversight or is the internal oversight in the organization, which, you know, doesn't seem like uh, being a judge and the jury and the participant altogether would uh, perhaps suffice, to, you know, to, to kind of say that this reviewal condition is really, uh, you know, satisfied. You're absolutely, look, I'm not going to put you on the spot here and make you UEFA's solicitor, lawyer, barrister. I'm not. But just, you're, you're, you know a lot more about it than we do. So what do you think are the type of defences UEFA will use, broadly speaking, to defend its actions so far, to defend its position as this monopoly regulator, and, and to be able to sort of say to the court, Look, you know, this is this is a this is a row about our calendar, right? This is a row about our pyramid, and this is why what we're doing is proportionate and legitimate. What sort of arguments will they well, make? Well, UEFA's response, uh, the, the one that we saw immediately after the announcement of the uh, of the Super League in April, was that they will suspend the football clubs really from their domestic leagues. So that was quite a severe. Uh, response uh, because that would mean commercial end of the clubs in a way um, and they can't really you know uh, do much about it uh, now um, whether or not that is a disproportionate response is also subject to to you know some debate because uh, you have to look at the nature of the threat as well and what they were facing and what UEFA was facing uh, was uh, what they themselves defined as uh, existential threat to European football. And, you know, if they could really uh, justify this and show that it, there was an existential threat, for instance, to domestic leagues, to viability of domestic football, that, that could already, you know, be a very strong argument in the court because um, they wouldn't really... Um, uh, I, I think that they would uh, then be able to demonstrate that their uh, response, which was quite, you know, quite, uh, I would say, uh, drastic measure, um, that it was proportionate to the nature and the level of threat. So that the only way to stop this from happening was, in fact, to issue such threat. And that 
Yeah, basically. And so that nothing lesser than that would really be able to achieve the same objective of stopping this Super League, uh, you know, in order to perhaps preserve European football, domestic leagues viability, perhaps European uh, football pyramid uh, in the regulatory sense and so on and so forth. I don't know what Super League really was proposing, so I can't say what the outcome would be. Maybe Super League came and said, hey, look, we will accept your regulatory authority. We will contribute. We will be completely open in terms of system of promotion and relegation, in which case, you know, that, that they would be in the right, you know, but that's the thing, you know, we don't even know that they are, we didn't even know that they yeah. approached UEFA until like two days ago. And there is another issue to this that we, we that there's almost sort of a secondary issue at the moment, because you're right, the row, the, the, the current row, the important row is about this regulator com- competition organizer issue and about access to the market, about being fair. But there is also an argument that, the Super League proposal itself might have been illegal. You know, if it was a closed shop, there were, they, it, it could well have been facing its own EU competition dispute at some point. It could have. This particular um, alternative league or breakaway league would have been, in fact, I think closed is, is not an unfair thing to say because if you cement 15 out of 20 places in that, league you know and then say five places are really open for promotion and relegation and we know which clubs are going to be getting those five spots you know time after time there'll be no more than 10 clubs rolling you are essentially creating a closed shop in united states system this might be you know fine because they, they have a bit different uh, laws but in europe this would be for closing the market uh, for the rest of participants. It would also go against some of the uh, EU sports uh, policy. So yeah, if, if they went uh, ahead with that format that we were informed of in April, it would be legal case against the Super League as well that, that could be made quite uh, viably. You know, your expertise, and I've, you know, I've, I've read some of your stuff, is about breakaway leagues, you know, across sport, you know, the success of them, the ones that work, the ones that have, haven't. What the Super League have said to me I have spoken to them or people that speak for them is that they were almost forced by the system to go this way. Announcement first, test the market, possibly go to court because there is no other way to go through the football system with a new idea. And they have said that in a better system, their idea would have been corrected, not killed. And I think they have now realized because the fans have told them that the semi-closed element of the league like it. So when they come back, and they will come back, what do you think they're going to learn from this? What do you think they're going to take from their confidence they're going to win at the ECJ? I and mean, I think we can we can quibble about what they mean by win, but they're going to get something from it. They're going to get maybe these defined criteria. What do you think they will do next time? How is this breakaway league? ever going to happen if i were their lawyer i would have advised them to you know via email simply write we would like to set up a league consisting of these clubs and uh, we would like to just know what the conditions are so could you clarify and then the, that ball would be in the uefa side of the court and they would have to come up with these conditions and if not if they are not if they are, for instance dragging the answer for for month and so on and, and standing that way in the way of project um, then there would be a, a court case and in this in this instance clubs would be certain to actually uh, win because there is nothing really that UEFA could say in its defense. But right now, I'm pretty sure that 
regulatory monopoly will, will remain, um, as well as the UEFA's right to, to order the markets, but uh, that uh, the way that it's exercised that uh, function or as a regulator of that market, that it will be uh, corrected by the court, possibly. Um, we don't know what it's going to say about uh, the response to those uh, to the threat uh, that Super League posed to football itself. So if Super League wants to establish itself uh, without going strictly le into legal thing, it should communicate with stakeholders. When they came out, nobody knew what was going on. It just came out of nowhere. They didn't say anything to anybody. And uh, they didn't uh, have any PR, any marketing strategy. Uh, even their logo looked like, uh, you know, a child drew it. And so it, it didn't seem, uh, I kind of, I kind of was skeptical about it because it didn't seem like a serious project. Serious project will be planned for a long time. It will consist of hundreds of pages of marketing, financial format, and all sorts of information, legal analysis would be included, you know, and uh, that that was uh, that was the uh, impression that I got at the start that in fact you know it wasn't really a serious project so maybe they were from the start just uh, testing the market maybe UEFA wasn't really um, able to um, or, or willing to uh, give them uh, any any green light uh, or say okay in case you do this 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 and this we will approve you because it's a golden goose of UEFA you know those those uh, elite clubs. Well, Count, I think you've I think you've nailed it there. I think that the next time they come back with this plan, they're going to dump a hundred pages of, of information on us at midnight on a Sunday, and uh, you know they'll they'll have it they'll have it more thought through. But uh, look, thanks very much for your time. And uh, who knew European Union competition law could be so interesting and exciting? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Matt. That's it. Thanks to uh, Katerina this week. Dan Bardell back on this feed on Friday to look ahead to the weekend. I'm back on Tuesday for the Athletic Football Pod. And then Matt will be back with me next week for the Business of Sport Pod. And don't forget, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, then you can head to theathletic.com slash footballpod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. Thanks very much for listening. The Athletic.